likes. You know, for a, a guy that's as introverted as Alex is, that's a big deal. So thank you. We understand. Well, we, I don't understand because I'm not an introvert, but I can appreciate the struggle this morning. So thank you. And yes, hashtag 2020, if you haven't heard, Tropical Storm Zeta, I forgot to finish hooking up, is brewing in the Gulf because why not, right? Why would we not have another tropical storm? But uh, as of the 10 o'clock update, it looks like it's heading to our, uh, to our east, uh, Mississippi, Alabama, and we're happy to let them take one for us. Um, look, again, I, I just keep telling you guys this. I'm on a broken record. If you hadn't figured that out yet, I'm sorry. Um, but again, the music this morning, Alex, I appreciate your faithfulness to listen to the Holy Spirit summarize the sermon. Um, and, and not this last song, but the one before that. I'm with you more than you know is one of the lyrics. Others come to me. I'm all you need. Come to me. I'm everything. I mean, that's what we're going to talk about today. I, I do want to give you a heads up. Today's, the title of today's message is Living in Truth. Um, and I want you to do a couple of things for me. Uh, one, I want you to just sit up in your spirit and pay attention because today is one of those days where um, the Lord is going to challenge some, some cultural paradigms that we live in, that we've thought of and, and believed to be truth our whole life. And, and the Lord's going to challenge that today. And so this is one of those Sundays where if you tune in me in and tune in me out, you're going to miss some stuff that's really important. Today we're going to be closing out the, the um chapter 11 of Ecclesiastes, and, and I think it's important for us to, to spend just a moment this morning talking about what we talked about last week, because it's going to give us some context and some perspective that's going to help us understand um, what the author of Ecclesiastes is kind of trying to, the idea that he's rounding out at the end of this chapter. So last week we talked about faithful work, um, and if you missed that message, please go back and give it a listen, because again, as in a church culture, when we talk about work, it all kind of puts us on our heels. We take a step back and go, uh, because we understand grace here at the Gathering Place, and it makes us, reminds us of, of times when we felt like we had to work to earn our salvation. Obviously, that is not truth, and we talked about that a lot. So um, go back and listen to that if you missed it from last week. It's on podcast and on uh, Facebook. We went into detail a lot last week about what it means to work faithfully um, while living on this side of grace, what our motivation is while we do that. And I want to give a brief recap. What we talked about uh, last week and what the author of Ecclesiastes says over and over and over again is we don't know what life is going to bring, right? Life is not as bad as 2020 most of the time, but typically it's still uh, a little bit rough. And so what do we do with that? We can't fix all the problems, especially the ones that we don't know about. And so we shouldn't spend all of our time trying to figure out all the things that could ever go wrong, right? We need to trust God because we can't see all that stuff coming. We can't predict the future. And because we don't know what it holds or all the things that God's going to do in the midst of that, we work diligently at the task that God's already given us so that when those things come, we're ready for it. We're as ready as God wants us to be. And we're also in a position where we can help others as God reveals that need in their lives. We talked about early in the morning until late in the evening. We do the work that God has called us to. That's what we're diligent about. It's not about trying to impress God. It's about being obedient to his call. And this is how we invest in our own life. And then the lives of people around us is by doing the things that God has called us to do. And then we trust God and we work like there's no tomorrow because we're not promised tomorrow. So that as tomorrow comes, we're prepared as God has called us to be prepared. Okay. So in our text today, we're going to discuss um, the proper and biblical enjoyment of life. Okay. We need to see that through the lens of God's grace. And his desire to be in a relationship with us. If we take today's message outside 
of grace and outside of God's desire for relationship with us, it has a completely different meaning. And we'll talk about that a little bit today. Because culture tries to communicate some of the things that God's communicating, but they're outside of those two perspectives. And so we get a false idea of what that means. Okay, so let's read in our our final chunk of chapter 11 today. And as you're, as you're turning there, pulling your device up, um, I just want to remind you to plug in today. Okay, let's see what the Lord has for us. So Ecclesiastes 11, we'll read verses 7 through 10, and then we'll break them down. It says this, Light is sweet, and it is pleasing for the eyes to the sun. Indeed, if someone lives many years, let him rejoice in, in them all, and let him remember the days of darkness, since they will be many. All that comes is futile. Rejoice, young person, while you are young, and let your heart be glad in the days of your youth, and walk in the ways of your heart and in the desire of your eyes. But know that for all of these things, God will bring you to judgment. Remove sorrow from your heart and put away pain from your flesh, because youth and the prime of life are fleeting. All right, so we're going we're gonna to walk through these today. Everybody with me? I got everybody's attention? All right. Point number one I want to make today is that we need to live in the moment. Okay, we need to live in the moment. Now, when I hear that phrase, there are a couple of things, a couple of ideas that come to mind, and neither one of them is negative. And so I want to talk about those for a moment before we get into it. Okay, I, I tossed around using this phrasing a lot this weekend because our American cultural perspective is not the same as the biblical perspective. Okay, we know that. All right, that doesn't, this, this phrase for me doesn't mean the same thing in a biblical perspective, when we talk about living in the moment, okay? So culturally, these are the ideas that come to my mind, and you may have something similar or something different, but one would be this idea that this is this live in the moment is an encouragement to live for yourself, right? Can you guys kind of agree with that, that that would be one of the implications of that phrase? You know, we need to focus on what feels best for, for yourself and then disregard everyone else, just do what's good for you. And then the second would be more of a, a carpe diem, idea, you know, seize the day. And if you, if you think about what carpe diem means, if you look at the meaning of that, it's, it's um, urging you to forsake the future in order to get the maximum enjoyment out of today, right? We, in a couple, you know, a few years ago, the phrase was said, you know, YOLO, you only live once, okay? I know that's old and cliche now, but that's the kind of idea that we're talking about. But when we mean, when, when we think about this, you know, and admit, admittedly, to think about living in the moment sounds and feels good, right? Like culturally, American culturally, that sounds like, yeah, we should do that, right? We should live in the moment. We should think of, you know, we should take advantage of the time that we have right, right now. But that's not, that's not what the author of Ecclesiastes is telling us is best. Not, he's not saying to live now and disregard the future. In fact, he's saying the opposite of that. In verse 8, he, said, he tells us to remember the days of darkness, and usually when someone says remember, they're, they're calling you to think about something that happened in the past, right? But in this context, what the author is saying is that we need to remember that a day is coming. We need to keep that in our mind, that there is a day coming where we will stand before judgment, okay? Today there's light, but there will be days of darkness ahead, and we should not forget that. Both of these live-in-the-moment ideas are prolific in our culture, and I'd like for us to reconsider how we think about those things for a moment. I'm proposing that it's possible to live in the moment while also keeping a mindful eye on what is to come, right? This is not trying to predict the future. It's living conscious 
of what will happen in the future. If we look at this from a biblical standpoint and we consider what that might mean for God's children, we get a different image of what it means to live in the moment. Consider with me for a moment our creation. We've talked a lot about the book of Ecclesiastes points back to the book of Genesis a lot. But God created us in his image, in his garden. So if we're thinking about what it means to live in the moment, think about our culture today. For me, that when I'm thinking through this, two of the biggest changes that I always hear people say that they would like to have in their life is that there would be a change in, um, in their person, their appearance, the way they act. They want to change themselves or a change in their possessions, right? There's more things that they want. There's always this longing to be more, and you can fill in the blank with any number of things that you want that to be, but, but what I'm trying to say is that our desire is for something better or something newer. We're not satisfied with who we are or what we have. But if we think about the creation story, it says that God created us in His image, okay? That means that God created us perfect as He is perfect, and God created us in His garden. And he gave it to us for our enjoyment. He gave us literally everything we needed to survive. All that we could ever desire to be sustaining to us, whether material, emotional, or spiritual, was provided for us. And God did this because he loves us. So to live in the moment means to live satisfied with all that God has provided. We don't, there is no need for want or for worry because God, the God that created the heavens and the earth, created us now even though sin is into the world and we no longer live in the garden god can still satisfy every need every desire we could ever have let's look at verses seven and eight again it says light is sweet and it's pleasing for the eyes to see the sun indeed if someone lives many years let him rejoice in them all and let him remember the days of darkness since there will be many all that comes is futile or hevel okay Church, the world has changed, right? Like we understand that we're not living in the garden anymore. But God has not changed. God is still loving. We are still created in his image and he is still able to provide all that we need. And God has given us life to be enjoyed. Have you thought about that? God has given us life to be enjoyed. We can live in the moment not by focusing on ourselves or forsaking the future, we live in the moment by allowing the Holy Spirit to bring the truth that we are awesomely and wonderfully made and that God distributes freely to all that are in need. If you'd like to know where I came up with that, that's out of Psalms uh, 139 verse 14 and Psalm 112 verse 9. You can look that up later. But our passage in Ecclesiastes verse 7 and 8 needs to be considered in the light of our discussion on work from last week. For those that are pursuing the work of God, light is a welcome sight, right? If your whole focus of your life, if you're excited about serving the Lord, the dawning of a new day is excitement because it's the next time to begin work, right? If you've ever had a job that you absolutely love, you wake up first thing in the morning, buddy, you're ready to get after it because you enjoy it, right? And that's the idea that we're getting from this. When we find something that truly satisfies, we can't wait for more of it. And that is certainly true in our relationship with God. Think about it this way. I want you to think about it in your mind. If you weren't hungry yet, I'm about to make you hungry, okay? I want you to think about the best meal you've ever had. The best meal. Hands down, best meal you've ever had. Just hold it right there in your mind, okay? Now, have you ever had, 
either in that meal or one like it, where it's so good that you just can't stop eating and you end up making yourself a little bit sick because you're so full. Have you ever gotten there? I want to tell you a story. So um, because of my position at, at, at work, I'm often, when we go off to these conferences, the salespeople that call on us take us out to really nice dinners. And a few years ago, a colleague of mine went with me for the first time. Uh, he had not gone to those trade shows before. And he grew up in the sticks. He's country born and raised. Um, he's from Gina. Not calling out Gina. I'm just saying. You guys know if you're from here. All right. And he had never been to a fancy restaurant before. Okay. And so I'm trying to kind of do a little pregame with him and let him know what to expect because it can very quickly get out of hand. Okay, and so I'm explaining to him that, okay, when we go, literally anything on the menu is up for grabs. You can get it. They don't care. They're paying with their company card. They're not paying for this personally. They're going to write it off. So you just get what you want, okay? But because that's the case, be careful because there's going to be a lot of food on the table and you're not going to realize it. He says, okay. So we go, and, and they were taking us out to an extremely nice steakhouse. If you've, I don't know if you've ever been to one or not, but everything's a la carte. Okay, you order appetizers, you order a steak, and that's all you get is the steak. And then you order like family side sides for the table and you all share. Okay. So we're sitting down and there's a massive menu in front of him and he's just a little overwhelmed with all the choices. And on top of that, you know, the waiter is telling us the daily specials. And so as, and, and the guy that's taking us out to eat's already given a couple of, already ordered a couple of different appetizers. And so we're, it's time to order and he still has not made his mind up. And so the salesman orders first and then I ordered and then Junior just was like, I, I'll have what he's having. What he didn't realize is that I had just ordered a double cut bone-in ribeye, okay? That's about 40 ounces of meat, okay? This steak came out and it was like the size of this iPad. It was massive, okay? Now, I knew that because I'm a glutton for punishment and I'm not a quitter, okay? <laughs> Jim Gaffigan's my spirit animal. Um, and so the, the, the steak comes out and it's massive and he starts eating and it's incredibly good and the sides are amazing. And we get to the hotel room that night and he is groaning in pain because he couldn't stop himself. Okay, that's the idea, right? Is that when we are living in a relationship with the Lord, when our daily pursuit is about him, we are going to go to bed every night so full because of the work that the Lord's doing in our lives that we just can't wait to get up and start again. That's the kind of relationship that God is calling us to. That's why God created us. We were created to be in relationship with him. The God of heaven and earth, the God who spoke the world into being, wants us to know his love in that way, in a way that we go to bed at night and we are overwhelmed by the work that he's done in our life. Not only does he love us, but he shows it by providing all that we need. So point number two I want to make today is that we need to enjoy the gifts as God has intended them. We need to enjoy the gifts of God as he intended them. Let's look at verse 9 again. It says, Rejoice, young person, while you are young, and let your heart be glad in the days of your youth, and walk in the ways of your heart and in the desire of your eyes. But know that for all of these things, God will bring you judgment. All right, look, so since we're talking about culture, let's shift gears a little bit. I want to talk about Christian culture because I have a few problems with it. And as we talk about it, I think you're going to see them, Okay. There's some issues with Christian culture and some, some things that specifically this passage is calling into correction. I want to ask you a question. Don't answer this out loud, but just think about it in your mind. If you're a believer, what was the main motivation that was used 
to get you to a decision to accept Christ. Now, I can only speak from my perspective, but I grew up in church and been involved in church a long time. And for the vast majority of that, there were two, two things that were called upon to convince a person that they needed to be saved. The first was the future hope of heaven, okay? Which is good, right? Heaven's real. And so it was this idea that if I give my life to Christ, at some point in the future, I will get to experience him in heaven. The second was the opposite of that. It was a presentation of hell and how bad that's going to be and in an attempt to scare me into a relationship with God. The problem that I have with both of those, those are both true, right? And, and it's good for us to have a healthy understanding of both of those truths, that heaven and hell are real and we're going to go to one of them. That's truth. My problem is, is that both of those just glaze right past all the time in my life before I have to get to one of those two places. That's my problem. That's the part that we don't talk about a lot. And that's the part that the author of Ecclesiastes has spent this whole book helping us to understand what life is supposed to look like. If, if our salvation, if our relationship with God is supposed to last all the time that we have on earth, why then has our culture painted salvation in a way that it only focuses on the ending? That's like picking up a book and never reading anything but the last chapter and thinking that you've un fully understood the book, that you've gotten all that there is to get out of the book. It doesn't make sense. My issue with those tactics is that they ignore the very reason that we are created. God did not create us to live in heaven with him after we died. God created us to be in relationship here while we're alive here on the earth. That's the selling point. It's not about some future hope to come or some future misery to come. It's about the goodness of God, the love of God right now. The church has spent years teaching behavior modification in preparation for a future. I think this is one of the reasons that so many people end up leaving the church. It's because the basis of their faith is based on these two things that are way out in the future that seem too far away. And that's not their fault. That's what they were taught by the church. Those are the two options that were given. But if God created us to live on earth, wouldn't there be some aspect of our relationship that would involve our time here on the earth? That just makes sense, doesn't it? Hear me say this, church. We need to have an understanding of truth in terms of heaven and hell. And we need to let that inform the way that we live. And there's most definitely a need to live, to live wisely and to let the Holy Spirit guide us away from sin. But equally as important, we need to enjoy what God has provided for us as He intended. God created us to live on this earth. And so we need to enjoy that time. That's why God created us. The author makes a point to remind us that we need to keep in mind that God's going to judge us for our actions. But hear me say this, because I, I don't know about you, but there's a little tension in the air right now, because I know I'm probably stepping on a few toes. But hear me say this, if we're enjoying God's gifts as he intended, the judgment will always be in our favor. We don't have to live in fear. If we're doing the things that God has called us to do, if we're enjoying the gifts that God has given us in obedience to the Holy Spirit, when we stand before God, He's going to say, great job. Right? If we're not living in obedience to the Holy Spirit, when we stand before God, there's going to be a different reaction. But if our goal is to live in obedience, if our goal is to live in relationship, 
our, our, our experience on earth is going to be drastically different. I want to remind us of what we already have learned. That there is much that we can desire and enjoy without sinning. And I don't know about your growing up years in church, but that was not what was communicated. It was about a list of things I wasn't supposed to do, not a list of what I could do. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to walk back through Ecclesiastes just a minute, and I'm going to give you a list of what's good and acceptable. Let's look at this for just a minute. We can drink wine. I said it in a Baptist church. Look at Ecclesiastes 9.7. Go eat your bread with pleasure and drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God has already accepted your works. We can enjoy food, Ecclesiastes 2.25, because who can eat and who can enjoy life apart from him? I think every Baptist preacher's got that one nailed down, not admitting myself. We can enjoy our spouse, Ecclesiastes 9.9, enjoy your life with your wife you love all the days of your fleeting life, which has been given to you under the sun all your fleeting days, for that is your portion in life and in your struggle under the sun. We can enjoy rest, Ecclesiastes 4, 6. Better one handful with rest than two handfuls with effort in the pursuit of the wind. We can pursue dancing, embracing, peace, laughter, and love. Ecclesiastes 3, 4 through 5. A time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to throw stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to avoid embracing, and a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. We can appreciate money. Wisdom is good as an inheritance and an advantage to those who see the sun because wisdom is protection as silver is protection. But the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of its owner. We can enjoy gardens and music. Ecclesiastes 2.5 I made gardens and parks for myself and planted every kind of fruit tree in them. And then uh, verse 8 in that same chapter I also amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I gathered male and female singers for myself and many concubines, the, concubines the delight of men. Look, that's a pretty comprehensive list. Okay? But again, it's not about the list. It's about living in relationship with God. Now, any of that in excess can be sin. If we use those things in a way that God didn't intend, then we are sinning. But instead of making rules about how much is too much or how far is too far, we should teach people to live in a healthy relationship with God and let the Holy Spirit be the one that guides that, not a bunch of external rules. By following the leading of the Holy Spirit, we will be led into righteousness because we're following the Holy Spirit. So instead of creating a bunch of rules, we introduce people to Jesus. And when they accept Him, the Holy Spirit comes in and dwells inside of them. And if we're listening to the Holy Spirit, He's not going to lead us to unrighteousness. He's not going to lead us to sin. So the last point I want to make today is that we need to live life with God. Look at verse 10 in Ecclesiastes 11 with me. Remove sorrow from your heart and put away pain from your flesh because youth and the prime of life are fleeting. Listen, I want to I just, in case you didn't know this, I want to tell you the draw to follow Jesus when he was walking the earth was not a list of rules. It wasn't. Maybe a newsflash for you. The draw to follow Jesus was life. When Jesus called men to follow him, it was exciting. Right? Imagine you're, you're standing on the beach and you see these guys fishing and they come in and they've caught nothing. And then this strange man tells them to go back out and throw their nets again. 
And they bring in so many fish that it begins to break the net and sink the boat. And then that man says, you want to have power like that? Come with me, with me. Follow me. That's much different than, oh, would you like to be your, have your life like determined by a bunch of rules and a list of things you can't do? Come follow me. Which one are you going with? I know which way I'm going. Jesus brought life into the lives of people as he interacted with them. You remember the story of Mary and Martha? Let's look at it real quick. Luke 10, verse 38 through 42. While they were traveling, he entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary, who also sat at the Lord's feet and was listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks, and he came up and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? So tell her to give me a hand. And the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha. You are worried and upset about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has made the right choice, and it will not be taken away from her. Talk about a command to live in the moment. All of us have had somebody at our house, and you're worried about, is everything clean? Is the food ready? Do I have the drinks out? Is the ice out? You're thinking about all of those things, right? But the one thing you're not thinking about is the guests that are in your home, right? Which, typically when you invite someone to your home, it's because you want to spend time with them. And that's what's happening in this story, is Jesus has been invited into their home, and Martha is running around like crazy thinking about ice cubes and sodas, and Mary's just chilling with Jesus. And Martha's like, hey, tell her to help me. And Jesus is like, no, this is why I'm here. I'm here to hang out. So just stop and hang out. Look, for me growing up, church wasn't about hanging out with Jesus, it was about worrying about all these little things. Was I doing everything right? Was, the, was the, the music just right? Were things set up in the right way? Did we have all the little envelopes where they're supposed to be? Were there pencils in the back of the pew? All of those things were more important than anything else. And I think what the Lord is trying to help us understand is that those things don't matter. What matters is being able to sit at the feet of Jesus. That's what we're created for. It's to live in relationship with Him. We so often have forsaken the gift of enjoying God so that we can try to feel good about all the stuff we're doing. We try to make ourselves feel good about how hard we're serving when we're missing the point. And Jesus didn't only talk about um, doing something about what was going to come in the future. He did talk about the future, but that wasn't the purpose of everything that he did. Jesus invited people to join him in the moment. His invitation was to live life. His invitation was to walk with me as I go through my life. Eat with me, cry with me, laugh with me, pray with me, do wondrous miracles with me. Not give control of my life and then don't ever talk to me again. Jesus spent much of his time showing us that we're focused on making life about rules. But he... He was offering his life so that we could have a relationship with him, not so that we could follow a bunch of rules. If you'll remember all the interactions Jesus had with the Pharisees, he was breaking the rules that they had made. God didn't make those rules, they did. And they got so frustrated with him because he was living his life in obedience to his father. We've talked about this so many times before. Jesus said, I only do what the father tells me. He wasn't about the rules. He was about living life. Look with me at John chapter 10, verses 1 through 15. We're going to 
I'm not going to say we're going to close with this. We're going to close with this. It's going to be a minute. Hang in there with me. John chapter 10, verses 1 through 15. This is a story you've heard before, I'm sure. It says, truly I tell you, anyone who doesn't enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens it for him, and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out, his, brought out all his own outside, he goes ahead of them. The sheep follow him because they know his voice. They will never follow a stranger. Instead, they will run away from him because they don't know the voice of the strangers. Jesus gave them this figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was telling them. Jesus said again, Truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who, come, who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep didn't listen to them. I am the gate. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. A thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. The hired hand, since he is not the shepherd and doesn't own the sheep, leaves them and runs away when he sees a wolf coming. The wolf then snatches and scatters them. This happens because he is a hired hand and doesn't care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. So listen, we understand that Jesus is the Son of God. That's a pretty basic principle of our faith. But we need to put that understanding into action by seeing what Jesus is offering us here. Instead of a life focused on rules, he offers himself so that we can have abundant life. Normally, we're not told to follow rules so that we can have abundant life. That wasn't my experience. Growing up, I was told to follow the rules because that's what was expected by Jesus, right? But that's not what I'm seeing here. Jesus came to restore the relationship that had been so adulterated by sin. Jesus is teaching us to enter into His flock and to trust Him, and He will take us to abundant life. He is the abundant life. Church, until we experienced grace, we had no idea what a relationship with God was supposed to look like. I didn't for sure. My basis of relationship with Christ was based on that set of rules that were handed down to me. And then I discovered grace, and I realized that those rules don't matter anymore because I'm accepted by Jesus because of what He did on the cross for me, not what I can do for Him. Those that teach others to focus on the rules are stealing the life from those people. Jesus is saying he is the life. And so if we are taking any attention away from him, we are stealing that life. It's by knowing Jesus that we know life in abundance. I want you to think about this example that he's given us. He uses the example of shepherd and his sheep. Okay, most of you know, um, I raised sheep growing up. My sister still does. So I'm a bit of an expert, more than you, okay, about sheep. All right, I know a little bit more, just a little bit. Here's the deal. Being a shepherd isn't just a job, okay? And Jesus makes that very clear by talking about the hired hand and the way that the hired hand t takes care of the sheep. A shepherd loves his sheep, and they are much more than just his source of income. 
Think about for a minute, um, probably the most famous shepherd ever, which was King David. Before he was a king, he stands before Saul. This is right before he goes and, and kills Goliath. And Saul's looking at little David and he's saying, how are you going to defeat this huge giant? And David's like, dude, I'm a shepherd. When bears and lions come and attack my sheep, I grab them by the fur and kill them. I'm not worried about David. I'm not about Goliath. Okay? This is the level of commitment. When Jesus is talking about a shepherd and his protection of his sheep, that's the image we need to have in our mind. The shepherd is one who's willing to put himself in harm's way for the sake of his sheep. The shepherd not only protects his sheep, but he takes them to the best pasture and he makes sure that they have water to drink. And because of the time that is spent together between the sheep and the shepherd, there is a depth of relationship that can't be had by simply walking up to a group of sheep. Did you notice that he says that, that the shepherd goes before the sheep and what do the sheep do? They follow him, right? And why do they follow him? They follow him because their life's experience has been that this shepherd is going to protect them and he's going to provide for them, right? He's going to keep the bad things away and he's going to give them the best pasture and make sure they have plenty of water to drink. There's a base of trust there. The sheep not only know the shepherd's voice, but they respond to it when he calls. And then he says, there are more sheep to be gathered. Look at verse 16. He says, but I have other sheep that are not from this pen. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. There will be one flock and one shepherd. Do you know how new sheep learn to trust the shepherd? Do you know how? They follow the other sheep. You introduce a couple of new lambs into a flock, and they have a herd mentality. And so they are going to follow all the other lambs who are following the shepherd. But that only happens for a while. And then their experiences begin to tell them of the goodness of the shepherd. And their basis of trust is no longer in the sheep around them, but in the shepherd because of the experiences that they have. Church, make that application to, to who we are and the call that God has for us. We are the sheep. He is the shepherd. There is a depth of trust because we've seen him as our protector and our provider over and over and over again. And the result of that is when God calls us to himself and says, go do this thing, we can say, okay, because we trust him, because there's a depth of relationship there. But there are other people in our lives, other sheep who don't know, who don't trust him. And the way they begin to have that level of trust is by coming alongside us and doing life with us. And seeing what God is doing in our lives, having those experiences alongside us until they get to a place where they're ready to step out in faith too. That's who we are called to be. People are drawn to Christ when they do life around other people because they begin to see freedom that can't be found anywhere else. Right? I don't know about you, but the, the reason that I was drawn to the gathering place is because there was freedom there that I had not experienced before. I know because of your testimony that that's the same truth that happens for a lot of you. That you see a group of people who seem to live in a way that is outside of the rest of church culture. And, and guys, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying we're better than anybody else because we're not. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But what we do know, what we have experienced is God's grace. 
And people see that. They see that freedom in our lives that we're not worried about a list of things we can and cannot do. That our worry is just about pursuing the Lord. And when they see that, it's refreshing. The rest of the world's already pulling at them with demands on how they should do everything. And the church often responds in kind by just creating more pressure for them to perform. But that's not what Jesus is calling us to. He's calling us to himself so that he can do all those things through us. Through that experience of that love, people are brought into Christ's likeness. They learn to mean that that's what life with God is about. It's not about a rule, a list of rules or a list of demands. Life is about simply living in relationship with God and learning to trust Him. We simply embark on a daily walk and then we allow God, we allow who He is to change who we are. That's how we gain righteousness. Not by us working really hard to be a better person, but just by being in His presence, who he, who he is changes who we are. As His sheep, we are called by God to follow Christ. And then through the power of the Holy Spirit, we love people. And in doing so, we're helping others to see Jesus as the Good Shepherd until they have enough experiences of their own to trust Him for themselves. I want to end with this idea. I was talking with somebody last week, maybe it was the week before, and I was telling them the story of where the name of our church came from. And I'll be honest, I forget that many of you were not here when we first started the gathering place. And so you may not understand where that name comes from. But it's going to kind of tie all this back together today. Our name comes out of Luke chapter 15, verse 1, and it says this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, right? That's where the name the gathering place comes from, because we're all a bunch of sinners gathering around Jesus. That's who we are. There was nothing special about us. We are a bunch of messed up people that are pursuing the Lord together. And in doing so, we have an opportunity to share the trust and the love and the joy that we have found in the Lord. That's how we share the gospel. That's how we invest in life is by living in the truth. Living in the life that God has given us. Using the gifts that He has given us in the way that He intended and not focusing on what we can and cannot do. So let's invest in life together by living in God's presence daily and inviting people to join us in that pursuit. Let's pray together. God, I thank you that it's not up to me to be good enough. I'm so thankful that, that you have not only provided salvation for me and grace and mercy, but that you allow me to live in a daily relationship with you. God, it's my, my hope and my heart that today that people would, would consider not just the end, but all that you have created us to experience here in the middle between birth and death. God, that it's life that you've created for us and it's you that provides it abundantly. Father, I ask that you would help us to experience that life this week as we walk with you. That if our relationship has been based on a list of things we can't do or can do or a list of expectations, that Father, that you would help us to see the truth that that's not what life with you is about. Father, help us to experience your love, to see the blessedness that comes from just walking with you on a daily basis. God, teach us how to trust you 
And if we're not ready yet, God, put people in our lives that do so that we can walk alongside them and gain those experiences as they trust you. Father, show us your love this week. And then let us show that to other people so that they can experience the freedom that's found in living with you and living in relationship. Jesus, we ask these things in your name. Amen.